Hello and welcome to the How Might We Sessions podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Scally, as always. Now, on today's episode, I have Gordon Seabright. Gordon is a charity chief executive and consultant and is the CEO of the Creative Land Trust. Creative Land Trust is a London-based charity providing affordable workspace for artists and creatives. In the past, Gordon has held roles at the Eden Project, National Cycling Charity and the Royal Horticultural Society. So I want to get Gordon on the podcast to talk about the affordable workspace component of the culture and creative ecosystems that exist throughout the United Kingdom and globally. The Creative Land Trust is a unique model that's acquiring capital assets, um, new developments, refurbishing older developments in order to hold these assets in community stewardship for the delivery of affordable workspace for artists, creative and cultural activity and enterprises. So space for activity like the culture and creative industries and the arts is extremely important and there is a huge premium behind those assets. So we have an incredible demand for space and not a lot of supply at a price point which is suitable for a lot of the ecosystem. A lot of new space is being developed inside of mixed-use developments on former employment land, so say an old industrial area of a city. And in those developments, there will be the provision to deliver affordable space. And that could be for creative and cultural industries and artists, but it could be any sort of business potentially. So perhaps by having some ambiguity there, it just means that space is delivered, but perhaps isn't delivered to the specification required by certain practitioners or is delivered to a level which isn't necessary for a lot of, say, fine artists and sculptors, but by delivering in a certain way means that the price point potentially goes into a higher uh, bound, meaning that they are priced out and we have a, a kind of extraction of artists from central and fringe locations in London. So that high price elasticity of demand whereby prices reach a certain point and thus a certain section of our arts, culture and creative industries cannot obtain or lose this demand for that space by nature of it falling outside of their ability to afford means that we start to have potentially homogenous places or places that serve certain industries more than others. So Createch, graphic design, potentially architecture, fashion, music, certain companies which generate revenue in a more consistent way or to a certain scale, a larger scale than say a fine artist or a sculptor. That's speaking in the aggregate, of course, but you can kind of see the complexities here in the push and the pull. So I wanted to get Gordon on to talk about this dynamic and how a modality like a land trust can start to swim against that tide, preserve space for artists and makers inside of densely populated areas like Hackney Wick or Brixton, New York, the list goes on and how the security of these assets for the long term allows people to dig in and create deep roots in an area and think about how they can be good neighbours and create a place which is beautiful and exciting and great to live in. And in order to do so, we need to have a better conversation and a dialogue with the development sector, 
which is often the main driver now of new developments. So less housing and employment land being delivered by government mandate and councils, more public and private partnerships. And thus, in order to justify the need for this, we need to be better at tracking the value of these spaces that we deliver from an economic and a social perspective. So Gordon's incredibly astute on these points, and that's why I brought him in. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the How Might We Sessions with Gordon Seabright. Gordon, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. I uh, We've been trying to get this together, not actually that long, but I think it's indicative of how much is going on in the world of Gordon Seabright and the Creative Land Trust that we uh, we had to haggle a little bit to make this carve out this time. I'm glad we have. I think your diary was quite busy too. But yeah, anyway, I'm glad we've coincided. Yeah, I, I have to take partial blame, obviously. It's a 50-50 dynamic here, I think. But um, yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Um, I'm well-versed in what it is that you do through the Creative Land Trust and a big admirer of the work. I'm very happy that you have uh, roots now in Hackneywick. Um, but if anyone doesn't know about yourself and the Creative Land Trust, give us a little brief overview of what you and the Trust is all about. For sure. Well, Creative Land Trust is a charity which was set up just a couple of years ago by launch funders, the Mayor of London, Arts Council England, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and our friends at Outset Contemporary Art. And the reason it was we were set up was um, London as a city is a great global city and its success is founded on creativity. You know, that's why people want to come here. That's why it's the greatest city in the world. That's why uh, businesses locate here. And since ev- forever, um, what's happened in London, the dynamic has been that the creatives have colonised uh, a less expensive area, a difficult area. They've made it a fantastic area. Prices have gone up because it's been more desirable and the creatives have had to move on and they've moved to another another difficult part of town and they've uh, and you know, rinse and repeat. And um, the difference in the last decade is that there isn't a cheap bit of London to move to. You know, no matter where you go, the prices are such that creatives just can't afford um, workspace. And so what's been happening? Well, they've been giving up or they've been uh, moving out of town to perhaps other parts of the UK, southeastern coastal cities, that sort of thing. Um, more importantly, a lot of them have been moving to Berlin or Amsterdam or Dublin. It's actually London's competitor cities. And in the long term, that's a threat to London, threat economically, but I'd, I'd say more to the point. It's, you know, this is the best place you could possibly live and work. And if it's not a creative city, then it won't be. So um, those launch funders spotted that. And they spotted that it's a global city problem and that not a single global city has cracked it. So we're uh, we're an experiment, really. We're an innovation to see whether creative land trust is the model that can that can crack it. And um, we've put together this, this very different model, which requires us to acquire buildings in the in the long term, in the very long term. Sort of imagine us like the National Trust does for beaches and farmland. We're supposed to do that for creative workspace. And then make it available affordably. I guess we'll come back to what we mean by that. Um, uh, to artists and makers forever, and we do that through 
existing studio providers because London has this amazing uh, ecosystem of expert studio providers. And to make all that possible, we have to bring in money. So we're a charity. We're going to rely on philanthropy, but also investment. That's the big new thing that we'll be bringing in, is, or we are bringing in, is, is the opportunity to invest in creative workspace. And again, we, we can go into more detail on that. So that's us. And as you say, um, we've gone in the last few months from being uh, uh, a load of good intentions to actually having our first building in operation, first buildings in operation, and they're here in Hackneywick, which, of course, is a bit of a statement. I would say so. And you come in, so in the chain, so to speak, you come in between, say, developers and operators. Would you say that's where you, where the trust sits? Yeah, it might be developers. It might be some other form of landowners. So sure. it could be um, public sector landowner. Yeah. Um, but our job is to acquire the space in the long term. As I say, it could be permanent. At, you know, at worst, it's it's very long lease. Um, and then we want to make it available via studio provider because they know what's going on. Um, to artists and makers, and probably the studio provider will um, will curate the space in such a way as to have the most appropriate creative uses going on there, yeah. most likely. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's such a rich um, operator base in, 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 I'm sure, all cities, really, but London, I mean, going back almost 50 years now of, say, the spaces of the World Space Studios, I think in the 70s, I think they, they came to pass. So, as you say, there doesn't necessarily need a lot of innovation in the model of how to operate space it's how can we maybe lubricate the chain between those who have assets and those who would like to use those assets for the good of providing space for artists which you have a lot of information on the sort of um the 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 outflow of people from these cities and it's pretty substantial isn't it i mean it's really substantial um and uh and i think a significant threat to to london um, and for that matter, the UK, I mean, you know, London is is whatever you know, we may feel about it. Sure. London is a massively significant part of, of, of the UK PLC. Um, so I think it's a it's a it's a, a national issue. And as uh, as you well know, and uh, uh, but it's sadly not widely understood. You know, the creative sector is is among the most important sectors in the UK economy right. and, and among the most ignored um, and we need to do something about that. And as you say, with studio providers, you know, there's London alone has about 250 of them. Um, uh, some of them extremely well established, as as you say, um, and some of them don't need a huge amount of help to get hold of space. But what we're talking about is long term or even permanent space, especially since COVID, when studio providers, you know, drained their reserves to try and keep the show on the road. Uh, it's that much harder for studio providers to step in and do a deal with a property developer or a landowner or whatever. It's not impossible. It does. It's, it's happening, but it's harder. Yeah. And perhaps we can, uh, you know, we can step in. Well, the idea is we can step in and we can uh, we can facilitate that and then make space available, probably through open tender, right. um, so that studio providers can uh, can thrive. And it's interesting to think of that reverse causality of something like having that many studio operators in a city like London because we just had a delegation over from the mayor's office in New York, which your colleague Eves was uh, kind enough to offer some of his time on a weekend as well uh, to show him the, the credible interest sites. But they were blown away by the amount of operators there are. They, they could only name maybe a handful in New York of people who were doing these kind of things for artists. A lot of it was one-to-one -one relationships or people living and working in quite precarious situations. So it's interesting to think about why this setup and ecosystem has been built around this need for intermediaries to 
to look after and proliferate and build these spaces because I guess it is quite frail and difficult to be an artist or a creative and cultural practitioner. But Yeah, well, I think you've got a couple of things going on. I mean, you've got the cluster effect sure. that, um, you know, London has become Europe's centre of this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, Hackney Wakefish Island is, is, is London's centre. Um, so by, by the very nature of that, you get more um, studio providers set up. But you also, you've got the issue that there isn't a right way of being a studio provider. There are any number of different business models and there's every reason for lots of them to to thrive. So so um, whether it's the you know the the big well established players the, the you know the ASCs and and uh, and Acme's and Cell Studios or or, or um, startups they've all got their different way of going at it and their different motivations. And you, and you've also got you know in some cases you've got groups of artists coming together to operate their own spaces. They, you, know, the, you know these are all these are all good things. But I think London's land values make it so difficult that we needed another thing to be injected into the into the value chain, if you like, in order to enable that that to thrive. Yeah, and it speaks to the the point in that timeline that I think we're at, um, that there are those requirements because it is a serious economic driver. There's incredible work that's already been done, but we need to have an honest think about how we not just preserve and safeguard, but help it to grow. But the nature of this show is we use a how might we question as a framework to have a semi-design or, or workshop style conversation to unpick a challenge facing the culture and creative industries, uh, a brainstorm. Um, we've decided to run with the how might we question, how might we help developers to understand the value of creative workspace? Um, I guess we could say artist workspace or workspace more broadly probably, but for the arts, culture, and creativity. From your position in terms of the dynamic that we've talked about there in terms of purchasing assets, which is oftentimes less so the practice, certainly modern parlance, um, operators will have leases and rents with a, an owner of a, an asset rather than purchasing it outright. Um, how do you see that addition of that as, aspect of the, the value chain, as you said, and how that correlates to establishing community value through space because I guess if we think about how clusters have grown across the UK and creative clusters have have really become something which have incredible economic value um, and you know the, the the point there we talk about how do we make developers understand oftentimes the econometric stuff has been harder to maybe pull from somewhere or that we've not had that information but the creative land trust has done a really specific job of quantifying the value in economic terms but how do you see the the value of purchasing a and then also the reporting and, and data element in terms of justifying why it's important that we support space for the creative and cultural industries and the arts right okay so lots in there there's um there's uh how how to acquire um well there's defensive and there's aggressive ways of doing that and by by that i mean there are places that are already established as uh, as creative hotbeds. So, you know, London, it might, might be Hackney Wakefish Island, it might be Bermondsey, there are a few, obviously. Um, the same 
is now happening in Digbeth, in Birmingham, in 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 Ancoats, in the northern quarter, in, in Manchester, in um, well, most of Bristol, as far as I can make out. Um, mm. This isn't this isn't a London only issue. Far from it. And actually, what we're hoping to do at Creative Land Trust is, if we can prove our model works in London. Then why wouldn't you apply it in other overheated markets? So, but anyway, that is overheated markets. But then the flip side of that is there's the the more assertive way of going about it, where you look to um, to move into an area that that doesn't actually have a huge uh, tradition uh, in the creative sector. It's probably something, but but huge. Right. but maybe it's a big uh, development uh, area um, like the Royal Docks Enterprise Zone, for example, where studio providers like you know, notably Bow Arts or Project have gone in and colonised and started creating clusters. So I think there's there's those couple of ways at it. Um, we talk mostly about private sector developers simply because the, the nature of the way that things work in Britain is that most land ownership, most development ha- happens in the, in the private sector. Right. Um, social housing providers are important too. Government owned or um, public sector owned, less significant. I mean, still matters, but it, it's, it's less significant. And in parts of London, that's just because council like Hackney, for example, has done such a good job of making use of its assets that hasn't actually got loads of assets hanging around doing nothing. Um, and uh, there are other councils you could say that that of too. So we focus mostly but not entirely on um, on private sector developers. They've got different motivations. I mean, some of them, uh, which are driven largely by their investors, you know, some of them, they... Um, they would sell. They would cheerfully sell a, a, what you might call a virtual freehold. So, so a lease for nine hundred ninety-nine years means they've effectively bought it. Others um, have different business models, and much shorter leases are what are, what's available available because that's the way their investors work. What we think we need to do is um, is provide them with proof of value. So, there's a mix of different forms of of value that we talk about, and. Um, and you know the big ones for us are obviously financial value and social value. Take the second first. Social value gets um, called a lot of different things depending on where you are in 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 London or the country. You know it might be social value, it might be cultural value, it might be social impact, it might be community wealth building. They're subtly different, but they add up to much the same sort of thing. Um, they are um, and they're measurable to a degree. Now there's an a cottage industry has been started uh, in in terms of trying to trying to place numbers against social value. And that can be frustrating. But I also understand why it has to happen because um because developers aren't necessarily spending their own money and just following their own passions, you know, they're spending the money of an investor who might live thousands of miles away and and you know and it wants insists on a financial justification for a non-financial thing. Right. So um so it's important that we find ways to convey social value with pound signs against it even if I think probably you and I would say well it's one of those things you kind of know when you see it. Right. Um Anyway, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I see what we've got to yeah. deal with the world as it is, not as we would wish it to be. Sure. Um, financial value um, that interested me when I came into this sector because um, um, I joined three years ago. I hadn't worked in the property world before, and um, it intrigued me that there was a an assumption that um, that people investing in property would and should know that creativity and art were good things to have around. And I might 
perception is mostly that is the case. But that perhaps that was enough to tip a balance in, invest, in an investment decision. Well, there will be cases where it's an individual's decision. There's, there's one person who owns a company or whatever where that is true. But that won't often be the case. So what we thought was important was to try and provide a, uh, a quantitative um, justification, uh, an explanation of what financial value you gain from putting creative workspace into a new development. Not, in a sense, it's, it's kind of obvious that there will be some, I think, if you think that having creatives in a place makes it a better place. Well, clearly developers think that because they throng to places like Acne Wick. Um, there's there's an, uh, a well-understood mechanism by which um, having some green space near a bu new building it in, in enhances its value or having a tube station nearby enhances its value. We all get that. Right. Um, what we thought would be useful is if we could figure out, well, how much do you enhance the value if you um, if you put creative workspace in there? Now, before I get on to the outcome of that, I should say something about gentrification because clearly there's an implication there that you're going to enhance value, therefore prices are going to go up. And, and I have to confess, I mean, that is that is going to happen. If you make a place, for as long as we have a capitalist system, yeah, you if you be... make a place more attractive, the prices are going to go up. I wish it weren't the case, but it is. A way that we are trying to deal with that is this business of we're in there for the long haul. You know, we don't take meanwhile space. With great respect to meanwhile space, that's not us. It's not the problem we're solving. Sure. So we're trying to make sure that creatives don't get driven out of a place because once we're in, we're in. Um, we're in, uh, uh, hopefully, you know, for decades or even hundreds of years. I hope that that, that counts against the gentrification effect. Anyway, so we thought, well, we better do something that is credible um, to the developer and investor community. And as far as we could see, there wasn't any. Um, oh, I no, hadn't come across any. No, nobody had put numbers against it, no. even though it, common sense tells you that there is a value uplift. And we were really far along down the line, weren't we? So it is interesting to think why that hadn't been done. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, think, you know, it, it sort of feels self-evident evident that having creatives in a place is is a good thing. I mean, developers don't hesitate to stick a big bit of public art up uh, in a place, and they presumably assume that that enhances it. They, right. um, you know, they talk uh, rightly a lot about placemaking and placekeeping. Well, they presumably think that adds value to a place. And, um, and uh, you know, if you want to sense off place, then I can't think of a better way of doing it than putting a load of creatives in there because it create you know, immediately you see character. You see what's happening in Park Royal at the moment, you know, where, where uh, right. um, you know, I used to, I used to run a, business that had production kitchens there and there was absolutely no creativity uh, at all and now actually you know you can feel it walking around that there's there's a there's a new life starting there uh, anyway we thought we should um, we should measure it we also thought that if we do it ourselves it's not going to be particularly credible for investors who might be based in uh, you know Dubai or Qatar or Canada or somewhere why would they believe us they've never heard of us so we got together with um, a property developer called get living and our friends at Creative Estuary, who are, to oversimplify, they're kind of the equivalent of us in Kent and Essex. Um, and we um, we commi commissioned Hawkins Brown, leading consultancy and architects, and they subcontracted work to Dataloft, and you can kind of guess what they do from their name, and another company called Ramidus, who pulled together loads and loads of data. And what they looked at was um, clusters and in indiv individual locations in London and in North Kent and South Essex. 
to see over time what happened to the value, rental or sale, of residential properties in places where you had a load of artist studios or makers, makers places. And um, the results were striking and they were really consistent. So over a 10-year spread in London, you're looking at a 4.4% annual uplift in value. You only get it while you've got the creatives in there. So if you if you then you know if you think you've pumped up the value of your property and then you uh, bin all the artists, then the price will come back down to what the market norm is. But it is consistent across a ten-year spread. So that's forty-four percent over ten years. I'm failing to compound the figure, but you get the point. Sure, yeah. In North Kent and South Essex, uh, looking at the clusters there, the figure was three point three percent across five years. And the reason for looking at five years was. Um, there was, there was less data to be had because there's there's um, with huge respect to you know Gravesend and Thurrock there was there was less of a tradition. It's a it's a, it's a more recent that studio space has really gone into places like that. Now those are pretty compelling numbers, and the only shortcoming of that research is that it's the only piece of research, right. and entirely understandably, developers and investors spending tens of millions of pounds would like a bit more data. Sure. So I think, you know, it, it is important that we at Creative Land Trust and the rest of the sector continue co collecting this data because I'm absolutely convinced that when we put artist studios or makerspace into a new development, it not only makes it a better place, which is actually the most important thing, but it makes developers, um, uh, it gives them more lucrative um, outcome. Yeah, and I think it's that in order to continue the direction of travel that we're going down, I think that development of a, a broader evidence base, I think when you think of a, a, why is this a problem in terms of being able to have a, 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 a dialogue in parity with those investors, as you say, if you can't talk about cost of capital or net present value of an asset in relation to this, and there's only one piece of research out there to justify it, you will probably be a little sheepish because of course every other investment will probably have decades worth of evidence behind it, which is doesn't mean that we're uh, fundamentally in trouble, but I do think it means that if we think about, you know, from the, the who this issue affects from the operators, they don't have the capacity potentially to do this kind of research, maybe. I don't know if you're, does that seem reasonable that maybe that was the reason why it wasn't done? Um, I mean, it's it's quite a big gig to to, yeah, to, it's not to a pull light off, and it's yeah. and um, I mean, I yeah, you've got to have a good reason for doing it, really. I high fived you from the internet when I saw that piece of research. I was just like, wow. Um, but we think about the, the the and you talked there about the, the sort of nature of a, a time a longer time horizon in terms of a return on investment. But again, you're you have a real uh, corpus of data in terms of the supply and demand dynamics of studios and the amount of creative clusters there are, the, the economic value of those. So I think there's a lot of evidence and research which, you know, say the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre do do great work on this. But I think, do you think in order to progress this conversation and help developers, trusts, operators, practitioners to get on the same page, we need more investment in data and research on the value of space? We really do. And um, it's brilliant that the Mayor of London. London has invested in this area and continues to do this. There is a fair amount of research. Um, in fact, if you go to the Creative Land Trust website, you'll see a page of resources and all that yeah. research will appear there. But we um, emphatically uh, need more. And also it's interesting seeing what is happening in cities like Sydney, Melbourne, Austin, Texas, 
San Francisco, Toronto, who are facing similar issues. And that the outcomes aren't the same, but you can see you can see um, resonances, I guess, across. And I think all this points to an unexpected secondary role for Creative Land Trust, because right. our job is securing long-term affordable workspace for artists and makers. We've taken a view that actually, while while our primary role is always going to be well, buy a building, let a building, um, we can serve the sector and ourselves better if we build on this research and if we address some of the other things that we perceive as relatively new to the sector as blockers to the success of uh, the creative workspace sector studio providers. So, for example, um, the planning regime. Um, we can't fix the whole planning regime. Every time the government brings forward reforms to the planning regime, they, they then retreat because um, they're going to up upset somebody. But we perceive that um, the planning regime at the moment, uh, planning system doesn't really serve affordable creative workspace. It's just not really recognised as a as a as an asset class for investors. And yet, there's a ton of good intentions, and the good intentions come on the part of like planners at local authorities who want there to be affordable creative workspace, and um, developers who want to make great places and get the affordable creative workspace is a, a part of that. Everybody wants that, but what people haven't done is find a way to knit that together to a sort of shared, uh, shared form of words, if you like, that could go into planning applications, but also planning conditions and planning obligations. So we, we at Creative Land Trust, we perceive a need and we sort of look around and we can't see anybody else who's going to yeah. fix it. So we're taking it on ourselves to tackle that and we may or may not succeed. But what we're hoping to do is find a sort of consensus position and I mean, you were making an important point just now about about um, needing to speak other people's languages effectively. Um, you know, artists are good at communicating um, to all sorts of different people. Our part of our job is finding a way to communicate to people whose main motivation might not be creative. You know, it might be might be financial, whatever. It could be any number of sure, things. Yeah. But we have to find forms of words that will work to help everybody see that. There's a shared outcome that they want, and there's a there's actually a shared path to reach that outcome. If we think about the a stakeholder map and a, an empathy map of uh, stakeholders and um, constituents behind those stakeholders, as you say, whether it's a investment fund, an endowment fund, a pension fund, whatever it might be, creative space as an asset class within inside a property portfolio, probably not uh, the stratification of, of that element inside of it, probably not there. So if we think about, say, that constituent of those who are going to invest or potentially invest in this area and what they think and feel, from your perspective with the trust, what do you think are the most, say, common asymmetries in that? principal agent dynamic in terms of is it they don't understand or, or don't have experience working with the sector they see it as a nice to have but not financially as lucrative where, where do you think the biggest asymmetries are and pinch points 
I think I think there's there's two that I jump on. One is around perception of the sector, and the other is about um, the the sort of mechanics of how large investment works. Um, so to um, and you're probably going to have to remind me what I said the second one was in a moment. But the first <laughs> one to 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 talk about the um, attitudes and perceptions. Um, even uh, I'm I'm going to overstate to make the point. Um, perception among some property developers and investors would be that uh, art is a lovely thing and uh, they're sure that artists are lovely too but when they think about a place that is uh, I guess a creative cluster or, or full of artists and makers their perception um, the word that I've, I've heard used is chaos um, and not in a good way right. um, and <laughs> not creative destruction chaos uh, absolutely and so um what you or I might see as street art is seen as graffiti and what you and I might see as long occupation is seen as squatting, um, for example. And um, what you and I might see as affordable rents, it, it might be seen as no rent at all. Um, so um, uh, that is, I think, overcomable, um, if that's a word. And, um, but uh, to take away the fear, if you like, and just, just get developers and the investors back to the good intentions the fact that they know that it makes for a better place you know they might want to live here um i say here because we're sitting in hackney wick and this yeah, is kind of the you know this is the the ultimate place in the uk that 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 kind of exemplifies this um how do you take away the fear well actually setting up a thing called creative land trust is a pretty good way of doing that because um we're, we're happy to work with um, studio providers, artists, street artists. We, 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 we are comfortable in that somewhat chaotic world. We can act, as, if you like, as a shock absorber. And so the landowner, the developer, the, the, the investor, they don't have to worry about that stuff that, you know, I would say they don't really have to worry about anyway, but they don't have to worry about it because we're going to deal with that and they're just going to have to deal with us. And, you know, we've got... You know, we. we We've got the Mayor of London and the Arts Council and Bloomberg Philanthropies behind us. You know, we're not going anywhere. Do you um, think that signalling is really important of those names? I think it's hugely important, okay. as is, you know, you, you, you will notice if you look at our first building here, you know, it's got plaques with a, with a, with a kind of reassuring brand name and logo on it. You know, it's, it is part of making us look reassuring to a sector that needs to be reassured, and that creates opportunity. So there's that, so, so there's that kind of perception thing. And then there's some practical um, things when you, you talked about sort of structural uh, difficulties for us. Um, there isn't an asset investment class for creative workspace. There is for um, like bulk storage. Um, you can you can go and invest a bunch of money in that, and you'll get a basket portfolio of bulk storage warehouses. Yeah. But you can't for creative workspace, and that's yeah, like a warehouse REIT, like a real estate investment trust of yeah. like the Seagroves of the world or, or Big Yellow and things Big, like that. Exactly. So now. I actually can't fix that, um, <laughs> but at some point I think it will be fixed because we will become seen as an important asset class. Now, does that matter? Well, yeah, it does actually, because if you are an investor buying, if you like, a bundle of a bundle of earnings, you might want to buy a bundle of earnings from a couple of asset classes that you're familiar with. Well, if there isn't even an asset class that um, creative workspace can sit inside. It's really hard for you to invest in, I and mean, when you really have to try hard to to invest in it. So I think, I think 
fixing that is important. And it's important for another reason, which is you mentioned like people like pension funds and insurance companies. Well, of course, they, you know, that's who we would love to see putting money into affordable creative workspace because they're the institutions that benefit from the creativity that sits behind London's success and the UK's success. But they tend to invest in tens of millions chunks. And London's studio provider scene does not function in tens of million no. pounds chunks. Um, far from it. So we have to find a way as a sector to innovate. Um, we have to become so attractive as an investment, as a, a different, maybe even slightly quirky investment proposition that people are prepared to look beyond the fact that um, that it's not tens of millions and we have to create a proposition that is tens of millions. Yeah, it's a great point because it's something that's really understood in, say, uh, technology startups, for example. If you get venture investment of a fund which is X hundreds of millions and you say we're going to have an exit valuation of 10 maybe, they'll go, that's really lovely and I'm very happy that you made that much money, but it is almost worthless for me because I need a fund returner. I need something that can match the level of capital I'm putting in across all of my investments because so many other things aren't going to work. But interestingly, in this area, we're talking about real estate, which, you know, of course it has its cycles and we're going through maybe one now, potentially in terms of a correction in, in house prices, maybe, I don't, uh, you know, again, we're not here to debate that, but something where artist studios maybe don't necessarily go through that cycle potentially as much. And as you say, people who are laying roots uh, in an area, their practice, their business, they are oftentimes good neighbours, long-standing tenants. They, they would rather stay for a really long time if there was security. But I just wanted to quickly double-click on that idea of optics and those brands and, and, and shaping shaping the industry because I think it's something that Graham Hitchin on, on, a, on the ep a couple of episodes back, we talked about the, the creative industries labelling from the uh, late 20th century and he talked about the Faustian bargain of the creative industries you know drinking that Kool-Aid and becoming this thing and what was the exchange between the two um, and if we think about practitioners in terms of what they see out there and, and how they feel inside of this dynamic do you think that by having to justify in those ways with those big names and those big institutions do you think in any way that they find that difficult or do you think they're just happy that it's happening and protecting them and Almost it doesn't matter what the function is that delivers that. I think we're still, we've still got a great deal to do to sure. um, to get seen in those terms. I mean, it's because the UK automotive or aviation industries, they're substantial, but they're nowhere near as big as the creative no. sector. But nobody questions the notion that those those the people who lead those industries get access to government, that government will will invest taxpayers' money in supporting those industries. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, and I have no problem with that. No, sure, but yeah. but um but we do seem to struggle with the notion that we do the same for actually, you know, the 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 creative sector which you know during covid uh, you know, wide people widely realized was actually one of the things that made life worth living but it's also what sits behind the success of for example the the, the automotive industry you know that's why if you go over to here east um close to us now you'll find chunks of the automotive design industry you know side by side with like fashion design and, and sport design so, um it's just we still have some work to do to 
we have a lot of work to do actually to convey that and and actually you know we can we can spend a lot of time talking about it i think the the incredible turnover of of culture secretaries that we have uh suggests that that actually it's still not perceived as we're still not perceived as, as a sector as, as important as we are so actually doing stuff probably makes more sense than continuing <laughs> talking about it and the the doing stuff to my mind is um is around innovating a model that actually makes it possible for the sector to thrive um in a long-term way yeah. once once we are anchoring places with creative workspace you know once you know that that's the place where you you are going to find creatives you know after all the UK is pumping out from our universities. We are pumping out thirty to thirty-five thousand art and design graduates a year. We have an amazing amount of talent Incredible. production. Yeah, we've got to give people somewhere to work. Yeah, and why wouldn't you want to be in central government working on that job? It's incredible that the turnover that that to me. I mean, we're talking our book here slightly because we have a vested interest. But anyway, uh, but I do I do wonder. In you've talked there about the, the public sector a little bit, or government, and of course the functions that those two bodies have in terms of whether it's production regulation or direct financing and you know we've, we've come a long way in a couple of decades or less than a decade in terms of section 106 affordable workspace policies and the like where do you how valid do you see those policies what what do you think are the best vectors for progressing the the, the creative and cultural industries in areas like creative clusters like Hackney wick or elsewhere do you think it's that production of space specifically through Council, so I think it's is it Islington that actually acquires a lot of Section One Hundred Six inside the council yep. and then operates, and regulation being more on the as we said on the policy side of things, Section One Hundred Six or financing sort of directly, giving money out to operators to or practitioners, for example. Well, I think we've got to be realistic that it's very hard, especially after you know twelve odd years of austerity, it's very oh. hard to expect the public sector or uh, especially local authorities to just give money out and. Um, uh, makes more sense to focus perhaps on on policy change where it can can happen and you you mentioned section 106 i mean that's that's critical it's funny the discussion on section 106 keeps getting pushed back because we keep thinking it's the end of section 106 soon it's going to be replaced by community levy whatever it's going to be replaced by actually ultimately what has happened is that section 106 um has slightly been over well has, has been overtaken by the growth in land values in London. So it's still hugely important, um, of course. Um, deploying it, I mean, one would love to see the way it is deployed being freed up a little bit so that councils could be imaginative, because right. I would say local authorities, well, I witnessed your visit from New York's local authorities, you know, city governments London borough governments they get this probably in a way that national governments don't because they they because the the importance of creative clusters is so blindingly obvious when you're in a, an urban environment um so freeing them up to use section 106 monies uh, uh to uh, to drive regeneration or to support successful sectors you know both they both 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 apply that makes sense but the tricky thing is um even a, like a council that was right at the front of how to draw, how to support affordable workspace with um, with uh, with planning policies and 106 is like like Tower Hamlets. When they introduced, you know, they were going to do 10% off market rent rents for 10% of the property. Well, that was great that they did that. They were there, I, best of my knowledge, before anybody else. Yeah, yeah. But the trouble is, 10% off market in London now is um, well. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's emphatically not affordable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy, isn't it? And and that yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think of that and, and that liberalisation of those policies in order to deploy that capital more efficiently. But I, I do sometimes wonder if the, those folks are the most um, efficient folks to deploy that capital. And uh, I mean, maybe that's that's where it gets complicated and chaotic. Perhaps I don't. I don't know. I guess the option hasn't necessarily been there for a long time, but. I'd be interested to. Well, I would say that a Sorry, bold yeah. thing that happened was um, was the, the the current mayor of London and Arts Council England and Bloomberg, but actually yeah. deciding the way to deploy capital was to set up an organisation, Creative Land Trust, that could do it independently and that could make its own judgments with its own board of trustees in order to serve this uh, desired outcome of uh, anchoring London's creativity by by securing long-term affordable workspace. I think that alongside all the policy nudges that you were just talking about, I think that's a really that's a really solid and concrete action and one that I should say that you know there are cities around the world now now seeking to replicate. Great, yeah. And and uh, when you think about the the world that you're working inside of in the sense of the practitioners ultimately are the customers of course for your space um, artists, culture creative practitioners um it's oftentimes a very sort of DIY um, set of, of folks. Um, and I think oftentimes when we talk about that previous issue, you know, people don't people don't necessarily maybe fear change. They, they sort of fear loss potentially in a sense of loss aversion, uh, kind of the, the psychological element of that, but also just the nature of when things go, say a, a, a DIY ecosystem of, of folks, you can't just replug that back in. But it is interesting that the Creative Land Trust has developed on a, a site which did have a lot of activity, has been developed into a new building formation, and the original one of the original operators has come back and is operating, and some of the original practitioners practitioners are even coming back in, which is something that I always heard was just not, you know, people like really ideologically they were like, oh, it's such an ideological thing, but pragmatically it just would never happen. Like they'd always see the change of the land being not about what they're about. But again, these are like a priori understandings mm -hmm. of a other things. So I think it's really interesting now that you're operating or, or you have operators operating in your space to see this see this dynamic come together. But I'd be interested from your perspective on leading the Creative Land Trust um, on a personal level. What, what are the kind of core principles that you uh, hold dear in terms of attack, uh, tackling such a, you know, an adaptive challenge? like creating a completely new model to service this very uh, volatile industry and close to people's heart. As, as a leader of the organisation, what do you see as the most important values to, to help get collective buy-in and enthuse your team and be part of the system? Well, a critical thing is that we have to be outcome-driven. You know, we know what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to ensure that there are loads of affordable workspace for artists and makers, initially in London, then beyond, over the next few years. Um, we have to sort of craft a way to doing that because there wasn't, a, there's not a template to follow. We're inventing a thing. Um, and so, you know, I'm blessed with a team of people who are as enthusiastic as I am about, about kind of driving to that outcome, experimenting as we go along to figure out what's the, what's the best way of doing it. You know, we know we want to be represented in as many London boroughs as we can. It was important to us to start here in Hackney Wick because that was a statement about, you know, we're going to, turn this thing around but we but there are creative people right across the 32 boroughs and the city of london and we 
we want to serve them as well. That business of serving is really important. You know, there's an existing ecosystem of studio providers, many of whom are absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's really important to us that we don't tread on their toes. We want to serve artists and makers. What does that mean? Well, um, we hope that uh, the studios and the workspace that we provide will be of a quality that will make artists and makers um, proud to be a part of it. I think um, uh, the the amazing resilience of artists and the um, astonishing flexibility they show in being able to turn almost any space into a, a workspace, right. that's great and good, and I wouldn't have it any other way, but enough of this model of starving artists in freezing cold places. Um, that's not okay. Um, you know, we've now got a, a, a minimum wage for, for people. Um, we should seek to achieve at least minimum standards of quality of the place that uh, the, the places that people work. Um, so it's important to us that we, we, we serve that. You know, we recognize we are trying to find places that are affordable. We operate below market prices. You know, we have to find every lever we can possibly pull in order to acquire places. Um, we've got, we've got the one space that you, you've kindly mentioned. Um, we've got another two that we've signed up that aren't operating yet, but they will be over the next couple of years. And we'll, we continue to look to acquire spaces and then fit them out and, and, and open them up. And we have to do that below market price. So I wouldn't pretend they're ever going to be luxurious. They're not. Um, but they should at least be places that people are happy to go to go to work and uh, and continue their their practice. And, um, and crucially, you know, we've got to do away with the precarity that means that brilliant artists waste half their lives trying to find the next place they're going to work. You know, that, yeah. that's really important to us. So sorry, I've strayed off your point a little bit, no, no. but probably made the point that it is, it is this focus on this thing we want to get done. This is, this is the first startup in my career. I've, I've worked in a lot of different organisations, so a, a lot of different charities, but this is, this is super exciting because this is kind of inventing a thing when we don't, you know, nobody and nobody's ever managed to crack this problem and we're, trying our way of cracking this problem and it is it is phenomenally exciting the progress that we're making no but i think it's a really worthy point because i'm just i was just thinking as you were talking i'm sort of back of the fag packet linear regression analysis you would say oh well we've got further enough in the the, the path to know the value of these spaces so maybe once we hit a certain percentage of spaces being delivered the quality of them would would also meet a sort of equilibrium going up by x percent but as as you say by nature of the affordability point oftentimes in order to preserve affordability the quality of the space has to come down whether it's value engineering or stripping away certain elements of the quality of the build not not in an unsafe way but just it doesn't turn into a we work for example or um I, I insert other workspace provider uh into that we, we, we won't be putting table tennis tables and uh, <laughs> table football in exactly because someone pays for that you know the free beer is not free um but it's just interesting to think of that dynamic i think and it's something that now in my conversations and of course to to be transparent i, I worked for many uh, workspace uh, providers in the technology space and creative uh, studio spaces and oftentimes it was that friction between you know in order to deliver affordability we're probably going to have to cut back on things and it's not because we want to cut back on things but it's because there's so much pressure on our margin or the paper thin margin that we have but as you say if there's a a new way to in a minimum quality like a minimum wage then all of a sudden we're we can kind of relegate that to 
the sidelines. And environmental standards as well. You know, Absolutely, that's critically yeah. important. We are you know, a lot of the time we when we are talking to potential investors, we talk about you know the ESG investors, you know, mm. environmental, social, and governance, and it's the S that people struggle with. Um, and we try and answer that, but we can't ignore the other two. You know, the fact that we have our, our style of governance as a charity with a group of expert trustees is important in reassuring people. And the fact that we are environmentally responsible is uh, is important to potential investors. I should say it's important to our team as well. You know, my last job right. was working in the environmental movement. You know, that, 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 that stuff Close matters. Close to your heart, yeah. Yeah, to 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 all of us. Um, so uh, so uh, <laughs> completely lost my thread. Actually, no, what but was I talking about? But it's important because when you talk about the energy performance certificate regulation that's just come in, a lot of the older stock of workspace potentially, or you know, old industrial spaces now would have a really below par EPC rating, and thus those assets, in order to get up to that level, will require even more investment, and then it would maybe price out the opportunity to have studio spaces in there. So again, if you talk about the environmental element, we're talking with buildings and buildings in the sort of landscape of, of carbon outputs, you know, cement and, and other inputs are probably, I think they're the most in terms of outputs of carbon in our system of, you know, take, make, waste, etc. So when you're playing in this space, you have to be acutely aware of if you don't have those certifications up to a level or you're going to need to retrofit, those are going to be future costs which someone's going to have to absorb. And it's an interesting moment. In we're, we're right now, we're at the moment where demolition is has become a, a dirty word in the property industry and there's a all of a sudden a presumption against demolition and in favour of uh, of retaining buildings and re, re, reusing them. And uh, that should suit um, the affordable creative workspace sector you know, just as it, it is going to be really hard for some building owners to achieve the right environmental uh, levels for for some office buildings that were built in maybe the 60s and 70s. And um, that could, again, that could open up space. I'm not kidding myself. It's going to be straightforward because, sure. you know, office space commands a great deal higher rent than, than artist workspace. But the, but it, it, the, the market is moving, I would just say, and there, yeah. there may be opportunities coming from that. And I don't know whether there'll be a regression to the mean in a sense of people who are formerly had office spaces in central areas who would now maybe take a smaller plot closer to where their team live, et cetera, and capitalize on more affordable space and different amenities, whether or not we'll see a re-energizing of central locations in cities for offices. I think there's a big question mark there, right? But do you think there's an opportunity there in the long tail for something like the Creative Land Trust to say, we could actually revitalize central areas through what we're doing here in the well they're not it's not the periphery but it's how people would maybe look at it if they think central and in periphery well it's a critical point there isn't it i mean for, for a start first of all we and the rest of our sector have got to be really good at, at grabbing opportunities when they come along and they yeah, might too, be unexpected right. you know may, maybe now everybody seems to be working three days a week in the office and two days elsewhere well maybe that generates an opportunity i don't know sure. so but we've but because we operate sub-market we've um or or Actually, a better way of putting it is because we are solving problems the whole time. You know, how how can we acquire a building? Well, generally because we're solving a problem that somebody's got. You know, it's not going to be uh, the perfect building landing in our lap. Um, somebody's scratching their head and we come up with a way that that building could be used and, and generate a return. Um, so, so there's that. But you're also talking about... Um, uh, bringing perhaps uh, high streets to life. Well, there's so much attention now going into what do we do about our town centres? What do we do about high streets that are 
you know, clones of each other that are full of, um, you know, full of betting shops and charity shops. What are we going to do about that? Well, to my mind, the answer is blindingly obvious if we can find the right financial model, which is that, which is that you know, nothing enlivens a high street more, any retail presence, a, a shopping centre for that matter. Well, and, uh, people who are actually creating stuff and then selling it. I mean, that's exciting. Seeing stuff really? being created, seeing it, seeing it, you know, being able to buy it from the very people who are making it. Um, that's quite a shift in the financial model for people who own retail space in shopping centres and high streets. You know, that's, that's um, it's not an easy transition to make, but I think we are the sector that offer a solution to uh, to the reuse of space, uh, of vacant retail space, um, and indeed the sort of culture-led regeneration of those high street spaces. And the, the, the biggest threat to that, to my mind, is, is planning reform that, um, that encourages high streets to turn into entirely residential areas. And of course, there's a pressure to build more homes or convert more places into homes because we have not enough homes. Um, but if we turn our um, our high streets or even our light industrial areas into nothing but residential, then we're creating residential deserts. One of the great things about creative workspace is is that um, is that it, it it's workspace. You could put it into a building that's got a load of flats where people are living, and if you're really lucky, you're, you've just given a load of people a, a commute to their workspace, which can be measured in meters. You know that's an extremely carbon-friendly way, but you know also, yeah. also you know people-friendly way mm. of, of 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 addressing this. What are you going to do about the 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 street frontage? Yeah, and there's so much opportunity there in live work and, and many other modalities, which I think are really exciting. I mean, we've got a couple of I think in terms of problems and solutions across the. The spectrum, and I, I certainly think the need for data, which you've done an incredible job of through the trust so far, and I think there's definitely room for more joined up thinking with policy and evidence centre, or as you say, architects, um, uh, people in that space, or, or, or local authorities to help fund, you know, research into the value of this because it does have great second and third order and primary effects for the the ecosystem that we're trying to support. I think that idea of um, liberalizing section 106 and, and, and those sort of policies how can we look at those in the next iteration whenever that comes um to open up ways to mitigate these deep supply demand uh, supply and demand dynamics within the space delivery sector and then maybe on the more complex end this idea of a kind of minimum quality level for space like minimum wage which i think would do a great thing in terms of dispelling that artists will just get in where they can fit in and don't worry about the quality or the the um, the niceness or the pleasure of working in the place because you know they don't deserve that as much as anyone else doesn't deserve that. But to reflect, as you said a, a couple of times, which is funny, I don't I, I don't know why, but I never really think of the Creative Land Trust as a startup, but it is a startup. Um, That's good. Well, yes, yeah, because sure. we're you know because we're Congrats. seeking to look reassuring <laughs> and uh, as though we've been here forever. So yeah. I'm glad I'm glad that's the case. Well done, execution. Um, as someone in that position, what what's been your biggest learnings in the journey so far? What if you were speaking to someone else, maybe not even just in your world, but generally thinking about starting something? What was uh, what have been the key takeaways and experiences which really opened your eyes? 
huge thing for me is being able to speak the language of the people that we're serving. And for us, that's, that's you know, Janus-like. We have to face two totally different directions. We have to be credible when um, serving artists and studio providers and makers and like we, we have... Um, you know, we care very much about that sector. It's important that the people in that community know that we're the good guys um, and want to work with us. Um, but we also need to be able to speak the language of property developers, landowners, local authorities, government. You know, we have to sound credible in those areas. You know, we uh, I have to own a tie, um, which is I'm somewhat reluctant to do, but it is necessary. Yeah. You know, we have to be able to go to conferences and convince um, people who... Um, who are investing huge amounts of assets, that um, that our sector is a good place to put that money, um, and that that to my mind is um, is perhaps the 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 biggest learning. Oh, it's the biggest learning bar one. I mean, the other is the need for more patience than I ever dreamed uh, I would I would require because I hadn't realised quite how long it would take to acquire and fit out a property. Yeah, yeah, the real value and my granddad always patience is a virtue as a kid, and I've got slowly closer i think to being able to have patience in in things working in the public sector and and, and local authority you have to have some patience too but um really i had a boss back uh, in my days at waterstones who said that um that patience was the most overrated virtue in business and i've always i've, I've always clung to that because i haven't got very much so um so i thought well this is good he's made a virtue of one of my failings uh but i am now having to learn some <laughs> well my granddad wasn't a businessman i mean he worked in uh, the parks departments actually around london and you moved down from Scotland. So maybe you need to be patient in horticulture. I, I, I used to work in horticulture. Eden you project. very definitely need patience uh, in <laughs> that horticulture. Was a, that was a beautiful link that I had no idea how it was going to happen. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and, and, and talking about this area. I think it's incredibly exciting what you're doing. Um, if anyone wants to keep up to date with yourself and your thoughts and the work of the Creative Land Trust, where are the best places to head? If they head to the Creative Land Trust uh, website, uh, then they will find uh, regular news reports on there. We've got uh, social media feeds in all the places that you'd expect. And if you're rash enough, you can always ask to be put on our mailing list and we'll ping you an email each month that will tell you what we're up to. If you're interested, I would advise it because I definitely lean on it from, from, well, I was going to say from time to time, all the time. I really appreciate the research you guys do and I think it's incredibly important for the for the sector. So yeah, Gordon, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. 